You know, Christmas is not about our Savior's infancy. It's about his deity, about God becoming flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. John 1.14 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. For nearly 2,000 years, the debate has raged about who Jesus really is. Critics, skeptics, unbelievers, and cults have offered a variety of explanations. Oh, he's one of many gods, or he's a created being. He's a prophet. Oh, he was a good man. Oh, he was a good teacher. He was a philosopher. He was a moral man. And the common theme in all their theories is that Jesus is less than God. But what does God's word have to say? John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing has been made that has been. Nothing was made that has been made. John's gospel continually stresses Jesus' deity, that He's God. In fact, at the very end of this chapter, chapter 1, Nathaniel, who's going to become one of Jesus' apostles, to discover that Jesus knew him before they even had met. And in chapter 4, when you have the Samaritan woman who's at the well, Jesus sits down with her, has never met her before, she's never met him, never even heard of him, and he describes her entire marital history that she's been married five times, and the man she's with right now isn't even her husband. In John chapter 14, verse 11, Jesus is trying to convince people that, the, that all the proofs that are out there show that I am God. And he said, believe in me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Jesus turned water into wine, something only God could do. He healed hopelessly ill people. He restored sight to the blind, which was only a messianic miracle. No one else had ever done that. He opened the ears of people who had never heard before. And he created enough food from a few fish and and five small barley loaves of bread to feed over 5,000 people. 5,000 might have just been the men. With women and children, it might have been over 15,000 that were fed. And he even raised the dead by simply commanding Lazarus, his friend, to come forth out of the tomb. The gospel, this gospel of John, continually stresses the deity of Jesus, that he is God, the incarnate Son of God, Emmanuel, God with us. And there has never been another person like Jesus. And John isn't the only one to stress the deity of Jesus. In fact, the whole entire New Testament does it over and over again. And listen to how the Apostle Paul catches the divine nature of Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross yes God is spirit but through Christ 
God has been made visible to us. In fact, the next chapter in Colossians, chapter 2, verse 9, it says this really remarkable statement. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Nothing is missing. No attribute is absent. No character trait is gone. Jesus is God in the fullest possible sense. In the book of Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the first half of that verse says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Now, in the Colossian text, chapter 1 there, those who deny the deity of Jesus Christ like to camp on verse 15. They like to say, the firstborn over all creation, assuming that that means that Jesus was a created being, that Jesus was not an eternally existing God. Well, the word there in the original language for firstborn, prototokos, and it describes Jesus' rank. It doesn't describe Jesus' origin. And in a Hebrew family, the prototokos was the heir, meaning they ranked first. They were the one who had all the rights of inheritance. And if you add to that, not only that firstborn, but you add to that if they're in a royal family, the prototokos also meant that they had the right to rule as well. Now listen to what God had to say about King David in Psalm 89 verse 27. Firstborn highest of the kings of the earth, ranking above all others. That's the meaning of prototokos there in Colossians and in regard to Jesus. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus in the anticipation of Christ's second coming in 1 Timothy 6.15 as, here's what it says, God, the blessed and only ruler, king of kings, and Lord of Lords. And notice there in our English translation, the first king is uppercase, but then when it says kings later, it's lowercase. And then when it says Lord there first, it's referring to our Lord, it's uppercase, you know, and then it's lowercase after that. Do you hear what that's saying? Christ is not only the heir of creation, he was the divine agent of creation through whom the world was made and through whom the world is now sustained. And think for a moment, about what this means. You know, if the sun were hollow, it could hold nearly one million planets in it the size of the earth. The brightest star in our sky is Sirius Canis Major. It's twice as big as our sun. Another actress is more than 23 times larger than the sun. Betelgeuse, one of the stars visible in the constellation of Orion, is 300 times larger than the sun. Is it any wonder why Job was in awe of God in Job chapter 9, where in verse 2 he raised the question, how can mere mortals prove their innocence before God? How can they do that? And here's what he says in verse 9. He is the maker of the bear and Orion, Pleiades, and the constellations of the south. How can any mere human being go to this God who's put this whole universe together out there and plead or prove their innocence to this God? Now consider this. The speed of light is 186,000 miles per second, which mean that it means that it takes eight and a half minutes for light from the sun to reach the earth. And if we traveled Around our universe, in the speed of light, we could reach the moon in one and a half seconds. We could make it to Mars, a four-year trip, 
in a, in a spaceship, a rocket ship. I have a brother-in-law's aerospace engineer at Huntsville. He spent 20 years of his career planning how much fuel it would take for us to reach Mars. Four years worth of fuel to get there. We could reach Mars at the speed of light in four and a half minutes. We could reach Jupiter in 35 minutes, Pluto in five hours and 20 minutes. Alpha Centauri, the closest star to us, we could reach that in four years and four months. Sirius, the brightest star, in eight and one half years. Actress, that star that's 23 times larger than the sun, take 37 years to get there. And Betelgeuse, which is 300 times larger than our sun, it would take about 522 years at the speed of light to reach that. They say to count the stars as one travels across just the Milky Way at the speed of light would take over 100,000 years to count all uh, the one billion plus stars. And they say there's billions of more galaxies out there. The size, here's the point, the size of the universe is truly incomprehensible. And the baby in the manger, the incarnate son of God, made it all and sustains it all. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became a single cell, a fertilized egg, an embryo, a baby. He was nourished by Mary's placenta and protected by her womb. He grew to the tiny size of a fist and his heart divided into chambers. He became flesh. Jesus entered our world not like a human, but as a human. The one who suspended the stars and created the earth, nursed from Mary and slept in a manger. Why would God go so far to be fully human? And fully God. Why would he do that? To let us know that he gets us. The message paraphrase of Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 explains it this way. We do not have a high priest or we do not have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. Experienced it all. All but sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he's ready to give. Take the mercy. Accept the help. Jesus understands us so that we can go confidently to him to receive mercy. Does he know when we're sad and does he care? Look at the tears in his eyes when he stood at Lazarus' graveside. Does God notice when we're afraid? Look at him walking across the water to rescue his followers in the storm. Does God care when we are rejected or ignored? Look into the eyes of Jesus when he stands up to defend the woman caught in adultery? Does he get what it's like to be let down by others? Look into his face as the cock crows for the third time and his eyes make contact with Peter's. By the way, John 14, 9, Jesus said there, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Have you seen Jesus cry? Have you seen him laugh? Have you seen his determination as he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem? Have you seen his provision in your life? Have you seen his help, seen his deliverance? You have seen God. Do you want to see God? Take a look at Jesus. In 1926, George Harley founded a medical mission among the Mano tribe of Liberia. The locals were receptive to the doctor and helped him construct both a clinic and a chapel. Eventually, Harley treated more than 10,000 patients a year. And during the first five years, however, not one single person from the tribe visited his chapel. Shortly after the doctor and his wife arrived, she gave birth to Robert, their first child. The boy grew up 
on the edge of the forest. And he was the apple of our eye, Harley later said. How we loved our little boy. But one day, when he was almost five years old, I looked out the window of the medical dispensary and saw Bobby. He was running across the field, but he fell down. Then he got up and ran some more and fell again. But this time he didn't get up. So I ran out, picked up the feverish body of my own little boy. I held him in my arms and said, Bobby, don't worry. Your daddy knows how to treat this topical fever. Uh, He's going to help you get better. Dr. Harley tried every treatment he knew, but nothing helped. The fever raged, and in short order, the disease took the boy's life. The parents were distraught with grief, and the missionary, Harley, went into his workshop to build a coffin. Harley placed Robert inside and nailed the lid shut. He lifted the coffin on his shoulder and he walked toward the clearing to find a place to dig a grave. And one of the old men in the village saw him and he asked about the box. And Harley explained that it was son had died and the old man offered to help him carry the coffin. Dr. Harley told a friend what happened next. So the old man took one end of the coffin and I took the other. Eventually, we came to the clearing in the forest. We dug a grave there and laid Bobby in it. But when we'd covered up the grave, I just couldn't stand it any longer. I fell down on my knees in the dirt and began to sob uncontrollably. My beloved son was dead. And there I was in the middle of the African jungle, 8,000 miles from home, 8,000 miles from all my relatives. I felt so all alone. But when I started crying, the old man cocked his head in stunned amazement. He squatted down beside me and looked at me so intently. For a long time, he sat there listening to me cry. Then suddenly, he leapt to his feet and went running back up the trail through the jungle, screaming again and again at the top of his voice, White man! White man! He cries like one of us! That evening, as Harley and his wife grieved in their cottage, there was a knock at the door. Harley opened it. There stood the chief and almost every man, woman, and child in the village. They were back again the next Sunday, and they filled the chapel to overflowing. They wanted to hear about Jesus. Everything changed when the villagers saw the tears in the missionary's eyes, when they realized that he was one of them. You know, Heather Walsh has been over in the Middle East and she's coming back today on this missions trip uh, with, under the Fig Tree Ministries, helping with uh, ministering to and through a number of young adult disabled people. And she shared this story from the middle of this week and we have a slide of this very thing. She said a very powerful moment for the participants happened today. George, who was their instructor, took us to a stable. When we entered, they were all complaining about the stench and the feces. George asked them to describe heaven. And I wish all of you could have heard their answers. Even our instructor teared up. As soon as George said it was a stable, two sitting near me immediately connected. This is where Jesus would have been born. And they began weeping. George told them that Jesus gave up heaven to be born because of his love for them. And one of the participants with limited speaking ability said, wow, and kept crying and saying, wow, over and over again during the entire 10-minute walk back to the bus. It was so powerful to see them moved like that. 
I will never forget it. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. Our scripture reading today told us that he came to that which was his own but his own accepted him not. They didn't receive that gift. But the next verse says as many received him to them give, give him the right to become children of God. That's the message of Christmas. God revealed his love to us, to this world, in Jesus. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you uh, for Advent. We thank you for the coming of Jesus, the one who put this universe into motion, uh, part of the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, created all that is and sustains all that is. God, it's overwhelming to think of, of uh, how incomprehensible some of that truly is. And yet, God, you came to become one of us, to relate to us, to be able to uh, invite us and draw us unto yourself. And so, God, help us this Christmas season to remember the true message of this, of this season, that you truly love every one of us, and you love everybody in this world. And we have an opportunity to share that love and to spread that love and to be the love of God in, in you to other people. Oh, I pray for that blessing, that gift this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, amen.